I'm Will Murphy. Welcome to Profiles from WFIU. On Profiles, we talk to notable artists, scholars, and writers and get to know the person behind the persona. Our guest today is writer Michael Sheldon. Michael Sheldon is the author of five biographies, among them the best-selling Mark Twain, Man in White, which was chosen as one of the best books of 2010 by the Library Journal and the Christian Science Monitor. His book Orwell, the authorized biography, was a Pulitzer Prize finalist. He's also written books on British authors Cyril Connolly and Graham Greene, and his latest effort is Young Titan, The Making of Winston Churchill. Sheldon was a features writer for the Daily Telegraph in London and a book critic for the Baltimore Sun. And for many years, he's been on the faculty of the English Department at Indiana State University. Michael, thank you very much for joining us today. It's very good to be here. Let's just uh, start off and and, uh, find out a little bit about why you were drawn to the art of biography. I like telling stories, and I'm not very good at making things up. So I like uh, researching a life. Every life has its story. Some people will tell you their story right off the bat. Other people are very reserved and wonder if they have a story to tell. But I think uh, tracing the, the arc of a life is just a very interesting process. And when someone's famous enough that they leave a body of documentation out there that you can go and research and find out what was said about them as well as what they said, Um, It's just very interesting, like putting a jigsaw puzzle together, putting these pieces of a life together and trying to find out what that life added up to. Now, was this something that you did by design? I get the impression, looking at your career, that in part this was prodded by some letters that you found at the uh, Lilly Library here in Bloomington. It was. I must say, though, that one of my favorite quotations from Churchill, which is not very well known, is something he said, I believe in personality. And by that, I think he he believed in the power of personality. So I've always been attracted to that notion of character, personality, not, not necessarily in a moralistic sense, but just in the sense of what do we make of ourselves? How do we finally put together a character that's identifiable? But to answer your question, I, I was uh, wandering around campus here at IU and uh, had always been intrigued by the Lilly Library, which... I think is one of the great treasures of not just this campus but of the Western civilization. It's a wonderful place. And I was curious at the time about George Orwell, and I thought, well, maybe they have something about Orwell. And I was told they didn't, but I went looking in the card catalog. They used to have card catalogs in those days. (laughs) And I found listed under Blair Eric that there were documents in the library. And that was, I knew, Orwell's real name. So intrigued, I asked, and was brought about, oh, 88 or 89 letters. And they were all wonderful letters written by George Orwell to his then literary agent discussing the difficulty of getting Animal Farm published. I mean, all of these amazing things about his career. And I thought, surely people must know about this. But as it turned out, uh, Dave Randall, who helped to set up the library, uh, when Mr. Lilly endowed it, had acquired so much at one time, I, I don't think even he was aware of what he was acquiring. And this, I believe, was one of those sets of materials. And I happened to be going to England that summer, and I I went there and asked the estate. I went to the literary agent for the estate and said, 
do you know of these things? They had no idea. Turned out they had never been published, not known at all. And my luck was that all this happened in 1983 on the verge of the most famous year for Orwell, 1984. (laughs) So the London Times published my story about the discovery of these letters and their significance uh, the first uh, weeks of 1984. And I was off and running. (laughs) I was also struck as I was looking over your your history. Uh, it seems odd in 1984 to be writing the authorized uh, biography, or at least you know, 30, 40, 50 years after his death. Um, and I get the impression that his widow was uh, serially dissatisfied with authorized biographies. I was surprised that you, uh, many years later, had the authorized biography. That happened because poor Sonia was already dead. Uh, <laughs> she t- she didn't like biography, and uh, she died, I believe, at the end of 1980. And the, uh, the estate was left to Orwell's adopted son, who's still alive, and um, his name was Richard Blair. And he uh, pretty much was hands-off on the estate, so the literary agent for the estate had been uh, fascinated by the first book I wrote. It was on uh, a contemporary of Orwell's named Cyril Conley. He ran a magazine called Horizon in 1940s London. I was fascinated by that. It had contributors like Stephen Spender and T.S. Eliot and Orwell. So when I wrote that book, it was called Friends of Promise. It did very, very well in England. It attracted a lot of attention. And the estate thought I would be good at telling the whole story of Orwell's life. It was an amazing vote of confidence in me because I really didn't have much to show at that time other than that book. But uh, the book was sold to Penguin Publishers in, in England. And um, I launched right into it and wrote it within about three years. And yes, it was called The Authorized Biography. I got a lot of heat for that because people would say, isn't Orwell already dead and who's <laughs> authorizing this? It was simply – what it simply meant is I could quote to my heart's content everything that I could uncover about George Orwell. And that was hugely liberating because often when you write these biographies, there's always someone, if if the um, estate's still being controlled, who – who will place restrictions on you, and I had none. So I was very happy about that, and it was a wonderful experience. Now, you look at the other folks that you've uh, written about, uh, Graham Greene, Mark Twain, and now Churchill. How do you go about the process of selecting your next uh, your next subject? I decided with the book on Twain that what I wanted to do, perhaps for the rest of my career, is not write the cradle-to-grave biography, but choose a slice, a really interesting slice, and actually tell it like a story, as though it had a, a defined beginning, middle, and end. And I did that with, with Twain in the um, episode of his, of his decision to wear the white suit, because one day he literally put it on and walked out and debuted it to the world, and it was an extraordinary two- or three-year period where he was the man in white. And I thought that story had never been told, so I told it. And a lot of people seemed to like that, so I thought, well, I've always been interested in the young Churchill as opposed to the old man that we all know. Because the young man, as he once said about himself, he said, um, I believe by the time I was 25, I'd written as many books as Moses. (laughs) By that, he meant five. Uh, (laughs) And I thought, a fellow who can write five books by the time he's 25 who can fight in three or four wars, get taken prisoner by the Boers in the South African War, and have all these adventures, and get elected to Parliament, 
and rise within a few years to be the head of the British Navy, that's a life I want to explore. <laughs> and it made a nice beginning and middle and end because I take him from the moment he walks into Parliament and leave him when he is thrown out of the government 14, 15 years later in disgrace because he's handed all the blame for the first failures of, of the First World War. And I, I really found that fascinating to see a kind of separate career for Churchill. For me, there became two Churchills, this young one and the old man that we know. And I thought failure at 40, absolute, utter, dismal failure, where no one thinks he'll be able to revive his career. To have that experience and bring it all back and triumph again 25 years later, I thought that was an amazing thing. And I wanted to know, as the subtitle of the book says, what, what was it that made Winston Churchill? So it's Young Titan, The Making of Winston Churchill. And do you come away with a different impression of him from just looking at, at that one 15-year segment from 1901 to 1915, roughly? Yes, because unlike the man that we, we all are familiar with, this man is slender, red-haired. Um, the best polo player on <laughs> It's very surprising. He's the best player for the, for the commons against the lords in the polo matches. <laughs> and uh, he's, he's dashing. Uh, he's adventurous. He's a ladies' man. He goes through three beautiful women proposing to each of them and being turned down until he finally finds a fourth who will um, accept him. He's um, He's got an amazing mother in Jenny who's American by birth, Lady Randolph Churchill. Uh, it's just a fascinating Edwardian story that has some of the same attractions to it, I think, that people find in Downton Abbey, in that you're moving in a circle of society that's lost to us but still seems very glamorous and and uh, almost exotic at this at this distance in time. And I, I just wanted to lose myself in that world and get to know a character that most of us don't know. This, I, I like to say, is, is the Churchill you don't know. And it's interesting to look at him. You think of Churchill in 1948 as almost a voice for colonial power. Uh, you know, India's just coming up for liberation. But it's interesting when you talk in your book about his time when he selects to be appointed to the colonial office. He's kind of a voice for um, anti-imperialism, it seems like. He has a run-in with a couple that's been running their own show in, in uh, Afghanistan, I believe. Nigeria, Nigeria actually. I'm sorry. Yeah. He's, he's an amazingly different character in this period because he's a liberal for much of it. And as Is he really a liberal or is he changing because he, he sees his path in that party and not in conservative party? He obviously sees an opportunity, but like many things Churchill did in his life, once he throws himself into it, he takes entirely – the whole job as seriously as he can and does his best. And he really perhaps starts out not such a committed liberal, but by the time he's finished, he's one of the most prominent liberals in Britain at the time, pushing all kinds of um, new reforms on society, being not at all the militaristic character that he's sometimes portrayed as. He's a voice for reason in foreign affairs. He's a voice, he's a progressive voice in domestic affairs. It's quite an eye-opener for people who have this stereotyped uh, view of, of the older Churchill. Well, as you go into your books and, you, and, you, and you're expecting to learn something new and different about the character you're reading, it really is just surprising to think of the uh, social agenda that he advanced when you think about nationalized insurance and all that sort of stuff in England, that he was a, 
a driving force behind, and you never associate that kind of policy, I think, with, with Churchill. I believe the Oxford English Dictionary gives him credit for using the term social security in the modern sense that we use it because he was looking for what we'd today call the safety net in society, and he was working with David Lloyd George to try to provide that. He is very much a different figure than we've come to to think of him as, and I find that fascinating. I think he he became that different figure that we now know in part because of the disappointments of that early career. It is as though he rises very quickly and falls and then has to put himself back together. So when I said that it's interesting in biography to assemble the jigsaw pieces of a life, in a way this this had two separate lives to it. There was the early man who's who thinks he's got everything he needs for success. He'll be prime minister before he's 40. Everyone says so. And he thinks he has everything that he needs. When it all falls apart, in a sense, that man falls apart and has to reassemble himself. It's interesting that at that time when he was thrown out of office, he took up painting. And a lot of us know that Churchill spent a lot of time in his spare time painting. But he did it at the time because he he had to have something to occupy himself. He had been going... Uh, full out for so many years that when his career collapsed, he he literally didn't know what to do with himself. So he took up painting as a way of simply occupying his time. But I also suggest in the book, it was a way of controlling life in a way that he couldn't elsewhere. If he wanted um, an autumn scene in a canvas, it didn't matter if it wasn't autumn, he could put it there. But in politics, it always mattered what was on the outside. Now, the the character, as you say, that, that that bursts on the scene in 1901 and even before that, is just raring to go. I mean, he's just he's ready to take on the world, and I wonder if you have a sense of where that comes from. You talk a little bit in the book about his father and what a ultimately literally crazy person he turns out to be. But is there something genetic that makes him uh, such a risk taker? Is there something in his early formation that turns him into that character? It's a legacy. It's a sense that you've come from Blenheim Palace. You are the grandson of a duke and a mighty duke in, in English life. And you feel that there's a certain destiny waiting for you. You, If you ever visit Blenheim Palace uh, near Woodstock in England, it's uh, a place in which the window washers spend a year washing the windows before they get back round to the window they began with. It's that big. So I always like to tell people that because it's an amazing thing to think of living in a house where it would take a couple of fellows a year to wash your windows because there's so many of them. So I think when, you, when you're born in such a place and your family calls that their seat, their home, it, it, it gives you, I wouldn't say a sense of entitlement, but certainly a huge shadow that's at the back of you, which I think can either inspire you or intimidate you. And we see this enough in famous families where some people never manage to do anything because they feel this legacy is so overpowering. Others are inspired by that. Churchill was full of it. I mean, he <laughs> you couldn't have stuffed more of that legacy into his body. He ends up, after he's thrown out of office and he's in those supposed wilderness years of his life, he writes an enormous two-volume life of, of his ancestor, the Duke of Marlborough, the first one. And it's still fun to read. But he, he he knew his legacy backwards and forwards. So he always felt that that was there as a, as a kind of prod uh, to his ambition. 
How is he in as a as a writer of that biography? Is he accurate? Is he truthful? You get the impression again from your account that when he talks about his father's life and writes about that, he's perhaps not quite as even-handed as he might be. Let's say he's inspired, <laughs> <laughs> and he projects somewhat. Yes, he does. He's he's inventive. He's in, he's uh, he tries to embellish a bit. Uh, I think he's he's trying to stop himself from making things exactly the way he would like them to be. So he sticks as closely to the facts as you might expect Churchill to sp- to stick to them. But he feels, I think, that there's an overriding uh, story there in which he himself is caught up. He's, he feels that he's a part of even the story of his ancestors. It's a story still being told, still unfolding, and he's, he's the latest in it, um, the latest installment, if you will. So I think when he wrote The Life of of the Duke of Marlborough, he was thinking, yes, and um, chapter 102 begins with me. (laughs) (laughs) Even though he's not the titled descendant, right? No, and I think that's very interesting because unlike many of the other British politicians of his age, he never took a title until very late in his life, and then only a knight. He he never called himself Lord so-and-so. He couldn't. He didn't have that. And I think he was proud of being Winston Churchill. That was enough for him. And I've, I think I say in the book that um, being a mere duke wasn't enough for Winston Churchill. <laughs> he, had, he had bigger fish to fry. Now maybe we should devote a little bit of time to talk about his romantic conquest. As you say, there were three ladies that he pursued, including and probably Ethel Barrymore. Isn't that amazing? Um, <laughs> Drew Barrymore's great aunt, I believe. It's <laughs> it does give you pause. Yes, she was a great beauty of the time and, a, and a, an actress, a real sensation on the New York stage. She appeared on the stage in London and her first performance, Winston Churchill, age 25, was in the audience and fell in love with her. He thought she was a vision from heaven. She was so beautiful. And he pursued her with typical determination. And uh, the English have told me, like a field general, uh, as though he were in, involved in a siege. He used to see her every night at Claridge's and give her dinner and send flowers to her dressing room. But it all fell apart when she starred in a play that was a huge flop in London. And he went to her dressing room and he simply opened the door and said, Oh, my poor darling, because he knew that it had been a, a disaster on the opening night. But he he loved her dearly. And in old age, both of them would talk about this early love affair and rather wistfully as though they had hoped it might have come off. I'm talking about in the 1950s. They still remember this period 50 years earlier in their lives. And it's that pattern with most of the women Churchill was involved with. He proposed to a beautiful English woman named Pamela Plowden, and he proposed to her in 1901. I found a letter in which she wrote to him on the 50th anniversary of that proposal, reminding him of it and expressing a certain amount of regret that she had turned him down. Uh, So he had these experiences where women, I think, were drawn to him, but they thought he was a a difficult character. You were going to have a wild ride with young Winston Churchill, and it was a question of whether you wanted to take that ride or not. And so I think many of the women were so ambivalent about this that... One of them actually, he had to tell her. He said, "I think if you if you um, if you have some faith in me, time and circumstance will work for me." And I I say I say in the book, could there be anything more prophetic 
then Winston Churchill saying, time and circumstance will work for me. <laughs> but it didn't work for him with that proposal. Uh, that was the third woman who turned him down. Now, I have to say that, that speaking as a reader, I was rooting for Violet in this, in, this, in this horse race. She seemed somebody who seemed absolutely matched for him, somebody who was addicted to politics, uh, daughter of a prime minister. Why didn't that work out? You're speaking of the most interesting relationship, which was essentially really buried. It hadn't – I did, couldn't find any other Churchill uh, book that discussed it. Hmm. Violet Asquith was the, the daughter of the then prime minister. She's the grandmother of Helena Bonham Carter, the actress who's married to the director Tim Burton. So we have all these interesting connections. <laughs> she – when Churchill uh, – when Churchill got away from her. She was the one woman who wanted to marry Winston Churchill. When he got away from her, married another woman, his wife for many years, Clementine. Uh, she married a man named Mark Bonham Carter and had a family of her own. But she too, laid into life, was still um, – she adored Churchill. And when he was in his 80s, she was around, still um, addicted to his words. She said, I don't know if people um, – are right when they say he sometimes was uh, full of his own rhetoric. She says, I only know that I was. She said, I love listening to him. Uh, her own stepmother said that Violet would have made a wonderful man. And what she meant by that in the Edwardian period is that Violet knew politics, knew history, could discuss it as well as any man of the time, and seemed as though she belonged in that old male at the time political circle. And in a way, she was another Churchill. They were great companions. It's just that she didn't have that mysterious air of beauty he seemed to be looking for. And I think that was because his idea of a perfect wife was someone like his own mother, Jenny, who was one of these great beauties, very mysterious in her sense of beauty. And he wanted that in the woman that he finally would marry. Whereas I think Violet was a very transparent woman, wonderful character. He, I think he would have been blessed to have been married to her. Uh, they would. They had enormous amounts in common. Was uh, Clemmy the right woman for him? He thought so, and I guess I guess with all of us, that's what matters, isn't it? Whether you know you can't second guess someone else's marriage. They were, I think, very happy for a long time, reasonably so, and they remained married, you know, until Winston's death. It's interesting to consider that Winston's born in the heyday of Victorian England. He dies when the Beatles are at the height of their fame in England. I mean, it's amazing life, very long. So, you know, when you have a marriage that lasts 50, 60 years, but there were a lot of other women to choose from at an early point who were all equally interesting and um, and viable as, as people who might have been a, mist, a Mrs. Winston Churchill. It is fun to sort of think that Violet might have been the real one. And there's a very dramatic episode in which after Churchill... Uh, agrees to marry Clementine, he has to explain to Violet that he's he's going to marry someone else. And that episode had been completely forgotten. And it was fun to reconstruct that and um, even myself take the trip that Churchill took. It was a 550-mile trip from London to a castle far north of Aberdeen in Scotland where Violet was spending the summer with her father, the prime minister. And Winston makes that journey so that he can say to her face to face, I've, I've decided to marry another woman. And it's a very fascinating um, moment where 
these two people who who may well have decided to marry under other circumstances now realize they're going to go their separate ways and uh, in many ways, Violet became his chief advocate in the government. It's it's no accident that he goes in a matter of a few years from being um, a minor cabinet member to home secretary and then first lord of the admiralty because he's got Violet there in 10 Downing Street as his constant um, number one fan. And that he doesn't jeopardize his political career with that calculation of the heart? It's a question of whether he would have been uh, hampered by being the, the son-in-law of the prime minister. And I think he understood probably that was true. I don't think he would have married Violet from the heart because his heart really was, uh, was captured by Clementine. But I think he also was aware that if he married the prime minister's daughter, that could be, um, that could be a problem as well as uh, um, something would be helpful. It just, you know, it could cut either way. I'll remind our listeners that uh, you're listening to Profiles on WFIU, and our guest is Michael Sheldon. He's just written a uh, biography of uh, at least a portion of the life of Winston Churchill called Young Titan, The Making of Winston Churchill. And we have lots more to talk about uh, this hour. Uh, of guests on this program, we ask that they pick a couple of musical selections uh, for us to feature. And uh, I'm always intrigued what prompts people to pick what they pick. And one of the things you've picked is Nat King Cole's uh, A Nightingale Sang in Berkeley Square. Why did you pick that? I love all those capital recording artists of the 50s and early 60s, you know, the Dean Martin, Frank Sinatra, Rosemary Clooney, Nelson Riddle. I love all those people, and I especially like uh, Nat King Cole, and I love his American take on a story full of English references. And um, Berkeley Square, of course, a very identifiable place in London, and He's got just a wonderful way of singing about it, and I, I think it's very smooth and uh, evocative. It's such a wonderful voice for phrasing. I think he always gets a little bit overshadowed by Frank Sinatra, whom I also love, but I think he had his way of, of phrasing as well. And remember, he's also a, a very talented musician, uh, plays piano, has it all, really. So I like that aspect of Nat King Cole, but I especially like him singing... Um, the song that's also associated with England. That certain night The night we met there was magic abroad in the air There were angels dining At the Ritz And a nightingale sang In Bodley Nat King Cole's A Nightingale Sang in Berkeley Square, a musical selection picked by our guest on Profiles uh, this evening, Michael Sheldon. He's the author of a number of award-winning uh, biographies, including 
Mark Twain, The Man in White, and uh, he's just come out with um, a biography of the young Winston Churchill called Young Titan, The Making of Winston Churchill. Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. And before the break, we were uh, um, uh, talking about uh, uh, your new book, uh, Young Titan. And I just have to think that if you're writing a sliver of somebody's life, 15, 5, whatever, however many years, you get to that point in 1915, right after that uh, terrible catastrophe in World War I uh, of uh, Gallipoli, and uh, it must be impossible to stop writing at that point. Well, I felt it was somewhat like a curtain going down on a particular act, and that act was so devastating for Churchill that you feel a curtain did actually at least metaphorically, go down over his life at that time. He felt that way. I quote from a letter he wrote at the time to his wife to be opened in case of my death, in which he pretty much writes as though he's died because he's going to go off and fight at the front. He doesn't think he'll return. He thinks the only thing left to him to do is to try and make up for his mistakes in some moment of valor. And I think it's important sometimes to stop a life and act as though it, it ended at that point as a way of assessing it. We, we do that in our own lives periodically. Some crisis comes over us and we're forced to look back at our life. And if we get the chance to look ahead and say, well, if given the chance, I'll try and do better or I'll launch a new career or whatever. So I think it's, it's interesting for biography to actually stop a life at a crucial point in which both the character you're writing about and you as a biographer and you as a reader have to stop and say, if this person had died now, what would that life mean? Would we still think about Winston Churchill? I think we would. He would be a much different character in our imaginations, but he would be, I think, still huge. Not the man who won or helped to win World War II, but a man of great promise who, sort of like an Icarus, you know, flew too close to the sun and, and fell. So I don't know about your life, but certainly in mine, there have been points at which you, you, you're forced to stop and think, if it had all ended there, was that good? Or if I have so many more years to go, will I be able to fulfill some of the promise I, I always had in mind? Middle age will do that to you, and that was, <laughs> that was age 40 for Winston Churchill. So it just so happened that at his own, as his own middle age arrived, he was forced to reassess his entire life. Now, I, I have to ask as somebody who doesn't know much about military history, uh, I always think of uh, that battle as his responsibility. He takes the bullet on that one sort of metaphorically. Gallipoli. Um, yeah. Mm -hmm. But you raised the issue uh, or the question in your book, maybe that wasn't a fair assessment. It wasn't. Many, many people were behind the decision to do a, a stupid thing, which was at the beginning of World War I, just to simplify it, the Germans and, and the French and the British were in a standoff on the Western Front. So there was the idea if you go around on the east and you open a second front, that will divert the Germans, open up the, the path to the Russians who are allies for their supply lines, etc. It was a, a very dumb thing to do, and it cost a lot of valuable lives. 
and we know about military mistakes and how terrible they can be. But this is one in which the prime minister, Prime Minister Asquith, signed off on. All the cabinet signed off on. The military was pretty much um, decisive in their support of it. But when it started to go wrong, like many military disasters, everyone looks around for someone to blame. And Winston had made a lot of enemies on his rise to the top. And he he was never shy about voicing his opinion, whereas others were often quick to hedge their opinions and straddle certain ideas. So he was pretty much left out there in the open when the thing began to collapse, and uh, he got all the blame. And whether that was wise or right or any of the other things is a question the reader can decide. But it, as a story, for me, what was so interesting is that he had finally pushed his luck too far and made too many enemies on his rise to the top. And it was interesting biographically to look at what happens when all of these things come home to uh, to confront you. I, I know we, all of us, see people uh, in their careers um, doing various things that are kind of going to come back to haunt them. And so for me, just the strategy of a life is very interesting because I think when you when you rise, you better make sure you've got a few friends around you who can help you when you fall because it's inevitable. And yet time and again, we see examples of people who rise very quickly Everything seems to be going their way. They think they can get away with a lot of things. They uh, stand up and make a lot of enemies, speak their mind, and then when things go wrong, they look around and everyone's deserted them. And Churchill found that to be the case. It made him a wiser man. I think part of the reason he was ready to confront Adolf Hitler when most people were ready to surrender to him in the, in the crisis period of 1940 uh, was that he had been through all this. He knew what it meant to take the fall for something. And people forget that when when World War II had reached that dark hour of Dunkirk, there was the assumption that Britain was going to fall. And I think many people may have thought at the time, well, then let Winston, <laughs> let Winston be the one who has, wow. to, who has to go down defeat. But, but I think he thought he could win it. And to do that when you're in your 60s, right. to believe that you can do that, means in part that you've been tested and you've been tested severely. So there can't be much uh, success, I don't think, without a lot of failure. You know, as I've been reading through the books you've written, I've, I've been wondering what the common element in them is, and that would seem to be one of them. I'm thinking of the, the Twain biography in which you look at the years from roughly 1906 to 1910. There is a guy who got knocked on his can a couple of times and uh, not so much had people clamoring after him. It's almost the ex- opposite experience, that he's saved by his his good reputation on occasion. I mean, he is helped out by uh, um, his friend at Standard Oil, which is another surprise in that book. Tell us a little bit about what prompted you to write about Twain. I'm a student of resiliency. I'm, I'm interested in what it is that makes people resilient. Why do they recover from the various blows that life delivers? Because that always happens. In the case of George Orwell, for example, he died at the age of 46, a man who was often ill, suffering from tuberculosis, really the last famous person to die of tuberculosis, and racing against death to finish what he thinks will be his lasting and enduring masterpiece, and it is, 1984. So I'm fascinated by people who have 
had a lot of um, adversity, and they overcome it. They don't necessarily win in the sense that, you know, it all turns out rosy, but they certainly demonstrate what it is that I think all of us want to have, a certain courage and strength in the face of adversity, that we don't retreat, we stand up for good or ill, and face whatever it is that's coming our way. And I admire those people like Orwell and Twain and Churchill who did those things. It's um, For me, these stories are inspiring. And they're not inspiring in some sort of simple um, uh, way of you know virtue over evil or something. It's, it's more about simply this test of character that all of us have to, in our lives, if we live actively, if we submit to the various forces that any life has to confront, we do face a moment where, you know, we get fired from a job or our ambitions take a crash, uh, a relationship goes bad, all the various things that we face. And how you put yourself back together after one of those ordeals is is something that interests me greatly. Now, Twain has a number of those in his life. Um, looking at your at the, at the slice of life that you pick from 1906 to 1910, I think the preconception that you're trying to get at and overturn in that is that he wasn't the dark, uh, raging, furious, bitter old man that he's often portrayed as. He was a lovely man who played poker with little girls and taught them how to shoot pool and uh, who, who had wonderful friends who, who, who said, you know, no one could make them laugh more. He was incredibly funny and you couldn't suppress that. And the white suit, in a way, was um, an, an effort to make that visual. He said, I've been to so many funerals in these last years of his life. He said, probably the next one will be mine. I, I don't want to go out in mourning for my life. I want to go out in a celebration of my life. I won't wear black, the traditional suit for the funeral. I'll wear white. So he goes out as a kind of ice cream salesman. You know, he's just he's having fun. And it's I think it's something I wish all of us could probably take a lesson from. Uh, when we face the end, sometimes we know it's coming. Instead of making it a, a time of mourning or sorrow, in a way it's a, a challenge to see if we can squeeze a little bit more joy out of life. And he did that. It's, it's full of adventure. He buys a new house. He builds a, a, a new mansion. He discovers Bermuda and races off at a drop of a hat to go down to Bermuda and enjoy himself. It's, uh, it's quite an adventure, and it's, it's inspiring because it's an adventure in the face of death. I have to say that, that oddly enough, this may sound like an odd comparison, but when I was reading this, I was thinking of King Lear because he seems like an old man who has a bad case of myopia uh, regarding his own family and his personal affairs. Um, and it's only in the final months, really, it seems, that the realization comes home to him of how misled he's been. Talk a little bit about the personal tragedy of his life. He's lost his wife. He's lost his favorite daughter. It's just a, a scarring tale almost. He has a kind of King Lear experience where everything that he has seems to fall apart at almost within a space of a few years, not only losing his beloved wife, and his favorite daughter, Susie, who died of spinal meningitis. But um, another daughter dies of epilepsy after a long uh, struggle with that disease. And another, the third daughter, um, becomes estranged from him because she's tired of being called Mark Twain's daughter. She wants her own career as a singer. 
and she somewhat resents her father's fame. So he has this difficulty of trying to um, understand what these losses mean to him when he's essentially a good-hearted, good-humored person. It's the interesting problem of being a someone who looks genuinely on the sunny side of life but has so much tragedy they can't help but look back and say, why did this happen to me? When his daughter dies of a seizure um, brought on by her epilepsy, he he says, why did this happen? And he says it with real anger and and frustration. And he addresses God, who he's kind of always in a battle with. He I think he, he tends to look at God as a sort of lesser Mark Twain, <laughs> not, not quite as good as he is or as, uh, as, <laughs> as able as he is, because Twain is always saying, I would have done these things better. And he feels as though he feels almost betrayed by God, that God has made him the kind of larger-than-life person he is who's led this incredible life. And then things start to go wrong, and he kind of wonders, why is this? What did I do? And yet, besides just the anger that you might expect from a Lear-like character, there's also this determination, as I say, to find um, reasons to come back, to be resilient, not to collapse and say, I've had enough. Uh, you just don't hear that from Mark Twain or Winston Churchill. <laughs> they never give up. No. Somebody showed me a picture of the young Churchill, and they said, how would you describe that face? And I said, I think it's a face that says, try and stop me. <laughs> And <laughs> no one did. Yeah. Were there surprises as you're writing these books? I mean, again, you you write uh, specifically the Twain and the Churchill book with this notion of overturning some preconceptions or, or some iconic images. Were there things that surprised you as you're writing about these two figures? Yes, because I when I wrote a book about Graham Greene, I discovered a lot of unsettling things about him. He was he was a very dark character, and I. I've always since then wondered, am I going to get into one of these lives and discover something that's truly embarrassing or so dark that I'll have a difficulty coming to terms with it myself? You don't want to be a cheerleader for a life. You do want to analyze it and try, not in a scientific or detached way to make sense of it, but be empathetic but not necessarily partisan in your study of that life. And fortunately, I think Churchill and especially the young Churchill and Twain, the old Twain, allowed me to do that. It was it was almost like being a guest at a party where you walk in and there's young Churchill or you walk into another room, there's the old Mark Twain. And you get to just stand back and watch them work, watch them entertain people, watch them, in the case of Churchill, propose to all these ladies and get rejected. It's my idea is to bring you into a room, let you see the, the color of the man's cheeks, listen to the tone of his voice, maybe even notice, as, as one reader said in the Twain book, they said, after I finished your, said to me, after I finished your Twain biography, I had to brush the ashes from my sleeve <laughs> because they felt as though Mark Twain had been there with his cigars, sprinkling a little ash along the way. And it's, it's, it's sort of like the moment where he meets um, or gets to know Helen Keller. And Helen Keller's introduced to him at a party, and she, can't, of course, can't see or hear, but she's learned to cope with her disability. She can tell who she's meeting by the feel of their hands when she shakes their hands, but she doesn't shake Mark Twain's hand, and yet, leaving the party, she walks past him and says, Goodbye, Mr. Clemens, his real name, Clemens. 
And later he says to her, how did you know that was me? And she just says very sweetly, I smelled you. <laughs> the, the pungent odor of his cigars gave, gave him away. <laughs> so what's the, next, uh, what's the next topic that you're going to pursue, the next subject? I'm tempted to give the Churchill that we know, the famous one, a shot because I think there again there's a personal story to tell. We we have lots of historians writing uh, about, you know, what happens at point A and B. But I think this question of character and personality will probably carry me through the rest of my career because I give you the facts. I give you the information that you're looking for about the the impersonal historical events. But it's really the personal drama that interests me. And and that's a way of taking all these famous figures and and treating them as though they were people you knew. And some of us are fortunate in our lives to to know some famous people and we always I think walk away thinking, well they're that, they're not that different. And for me, I think all those years I was working for the Daily Telegraph in London, they would send me out to interview a lot of famous people. And in each case I would have this experience of walking into their lives because they always insisted I go and interview People like Desmond Tutu or Hugh Hefner to pick two vastly different people. <laughs> Hugh Hefner in the Playboy Mansion, Desmond Tutu, where he was staying, being treated for cancer in Atlanta. And so you have a Nobel Prize winning man of courage in, in a civil rights battle on the one hand, and you're, you're sitting with him in Atlanta where he's living and you're just talking to him as, as, a, as a person. And you're, then you're in the Playboy Mansion and you're talking to Hefner as a person. And he, he actually talked to me about being at University of Illinois at the time the Kinsey reports came out. And he knew I was from Indiana, so he talked to me about Kinsey. And that was a great inspiration to him because he could see the sexual revolution coming. But you walk away from these moments in which you spend a few hours on someone's home turf, and you kind of think... Isn't that the way most of us know people? We don't know them as a biography tries to show you a person from cradle to grave. We know them in the four or five years that we're close to them or in the four or five hours that we spend with them. That's When someone says to me, I used to know so-and-so, if you boil that down, they maybe were at four or five parties together, spent a weekend somewhere, uh, maybe a long summer somewhere, and then they drifted apart, as most of us do. There are very few of these relationships that last a lifetime in which someone might have a 40- or 50-year uh, intimate acquaintance with someone who becomes very, very famous. So I like that notion of spending a few years in the company of someone very famous. And you're drawn enough to uh, Winston that you may go back for a visit in his... I may well, because then he's he's the kind of character, you know, where I think one of the top attractions in London now are the war rooms where he spent so much time in World War II. So people are still very much fascinated by that. But, you know, what's he doing in London at the time of the Blitz? I'm very much interested in that because he thinks it's important to stay there and to um, stand up to the daily bombardment of the Germans at a time when, of course, they were sending many people out of London. And um, I think that period of his life is worth writing about, yes. Whether I go on to do that or, or not, I don't know. But the idea of taking those slices of lives and and introducing you as a reader to it as though it, it had been part of your experience to know that person for that time, I like that a lot. 
Our guest for the hour on Profiles has been Michael Sheldon, the author of five biographies, among them the best-selling Mark Twain, Man in White, chosen as one of the best books of 2010 by the Library Journal and the Christian Science Monitor. And he's just come out with Young Titan, The Making of Winston Churchill. Thank you very much for your time. Now, for our second selection, our second musical selection that we ask our, ask our guests to uh, bring with them, you've asked for the Enigma Variations by Edward Elgar, specifically by John Elliott Gardner and the Vienna Philharmonic. So fill us in as we head out. Why did you select these? I love the piece, but also it's perfect for the period I was writing about. I often listen to it as I was writing about this Edwardian period. But it's also a piece that usually an English, British orchestra plays. And I I think when the Vienna Philharmonic plays it, they give it a fresh um, twist. It, it sounds a little bit different. And I like that idea of, of this um, foreign orchestra tackling such um, an iconic uh, English composer. Edward Elgar's Enigma Variations. Michael Sheldon, thank you very much. Thank you. And for Profiles, I'm Will Murphy. The program you just heard was recorded in March of 2013. Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Copies of this or other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found on our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios at Indiana University. Mia Partlow, producer. The studio engineer and radio audio director is Michael Paskash. Please join us again for the next edition of Profiles. For WFIU, thanks for listening.